you can think about that days um, and a, a time frame, and then um, we'll talk about how, basically how do you once you have the three-step formula, how to use direct to consumer marketing that both Lauren and I use in our practice um, to fill that up as quickly as possible. And then again, we'll open that up for this up for Q&A. So uh, question number one, you can type this in the chat. Do you plan to hire this year? So we'll go with a clinician and how confident, what's your confidence level in being able to hire and fill um, that clinician's schedule? So for example, um, are, we are planning, we have four um, therapists that we're aiming to hire here within the next six months here in uh, 2022. And we are, uh, I would say 95% confident that we can, once we hire them, that we can fill their schedule within 90 days. What do you have, Lauren? Uh, yes, we're probably aiming for at least two this year, two more PTs. Um, and we're, I mean, we're just struggling with hiring not only the PTs, but even our, you know, qualified front office staff to get, get the schedules full. Yeah. I'm going to put my headphones on uh, only because we've been getting a lot of uh, sirens from the fire hall across the way. So, um, yeah, so you said two, and as soon as you can hire them, you're highly confident that you're going to fill their schedules right away. Mm -hmm. All right, so, um, and this is correct, Lauren. Uh, you opened your second location in January? Yep, just two weeks ago. Lovely. How are you doing? Good, great. <laughs> any numbers or any ideas you can share with us in terms of what you, you have two clinicians there, correct? We have two and a half clinicians. One of ours, um, we have another part-time who just came over. Um, I'm actually, the one I hired was for my first location, the PT, most recent PT hire was actually for the other location as well, but no, we're, we're filling the schedule. Like I said, right now we're actually struggling to keep up with a good problem to have. Chad, I talked about it yesterday. I need more people to schedule, like just getting back to people in a timely manner. Great. Um, so some common hiring mistakes that Lauren and I, and I'm sure the other owners here have made as well. Um, the first one is uh, the, this fear trepidation that uh, once we hire um, we, that our visits might not stay, that, that demand that we've generated over time with our marketing systems, that somehow we'll have a lapse and a, a decline in new patients or um, visits, treatment demand coming through. Um, number two here is uh, if we are, this, if this is our first or our second clinician hire, we might be thinking, you know, everybody wants to see me, right? We have that uh, ego-based uh, self-employed mentality. Um, and yeah, really the, the barrier there is that we have this limited viewpoint that everybody in the world wants to see us. So that can lock us. Um, yeah. And raise your hand uh, as you're guilty with each one of these. So Lauren, when you uh, first became a practice owner, you, you purchased an existing practice and they had four clinicians. Correct. Were you one of those clinicians? Yes. So you got to skip over mistake number two here, right? Uh, yes, but I run into it now. I mean, I think my way around it now, though, too, is to say like, hey, I've hired everybody here. I've trained all of them. So they're all going to be, you know, good. And if you have any problems, then let me know and I can step in. So as long as I keep myself available, if there's any issues and um, through some of the follow-up quality assurance emails that we have sent out through Breakthrough for um, I answer a lot of those. So, and it's me answering it. So I think that personal touch, they're fine seeing other people as long as they know they can reach me if needed. Yeah. So you're not providing all the treatment, but you also didn't abandon everybody at the same time. Cool. Uh, the third one here is I don't have any open positions today, so I don't need to think about sourcing. I know if you're here right now, my guess is that, um, you're, you're actively hiring. Um, I know the marketplace um, has changed dramatically. I recall um, two years ago we had, and we had been running this forever. We had a pipeline of PTAs that we, we weren't even running ads. We just had, I think there were nine PTAs that we had that were um, at the time pre-pandemic. Um, now that has, we're losing PTAs faster. We haven't changed our compensation or anything, but uh, um 
yeah, at least in our area, PTRs are, PTAs are fleeing. Um, we do have a mini pipeline for PTs, which is a kind of a unique position to be in. But uh, what, what do you, what changes have you seen over the last two years, Lauren? It's been much harder for us to hire. I mean, it's taking on average, I mean, fastest three months, but usually closer to six to nine for us to find a hire. Um, so we are keeping ads up year round through Indeed. We've turned to using a recruiter for our most recent hire. And even through a recruiter, it took us three months to get somebody. Our first hit from the recruiter took us three months. Um, yeah. It just, it's really slow. Yep. So the, the big takeaway there is always be hiring, right? Um, regardless of the marketplace conditions. Uh, number four here is uh, I'm worried that costs are going to go up if I hire more. The So through Breakthrough, I get to talk with a lot of owners. Um, usually owners that are more advanced in their private practice journey, they realize that if I have 2,000 square feet today and I have two clinicians, that when I add the third clinician, my administrative costs don't go up, my space costs don't go up, usually my marketing costs don't go up. Um, those things across the board, they we actually get a, a decrease or a spreading of the expenses across three clinicians instead of two. So it's it's usually worthwhile to hire. And I know Lauren, yesterday when we were speaking, you said um, something that I wrote down that's pretty much the same way that I think about it as well, with, um, that the cost of not hiring somebody is significantly more than what most of us assume. So how, how do you think through that? I mean, we did a straight, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of us, but we literally looked at the income that we would provide by the increased visits, assuming you get their schedule up and going as fast as possible. Um, you know, three months, we lose tens of thousands of dollars in a heartbeat. <laughs> so if for any reason that onboarding a PT went slow and their schedule wasn't filled, I look at that and we, again, don't usually have that problem, but use that for training time. I mean, make that a better clinician so they're more productive once they are up to speed and it's not wasted time. Um, I think the other thing we ran into, and I don't know if it'll come up a little bit later, but um, I'm afraid the patient visits may not always be this high, kind of going along the, if they build it, or is it if, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Like we've run into, if you don't have the spots on the schedule to put people, then they disappear and it's, you know, you just lose them. There's no choice. I'd rather have available spots to book patients and have it be a little lighter because it, it fills once it's there. Yeah. I, I always see the trickle of three visits a week to two visits a week, which we're doing in some locations right now to one to, uh, you know, maybe we'll do a checkup two weeks from now or something like that, the early discharges and that, uh, that visit suppression uh, plan of care uh, negotiation downward. And the last one here is, you know, I don't know how, so once I have them on board, I don't know how to ramp up. We'll be covering that here uh, specifically um, in a few slides, in a few minutes. So first question is, how do I know when it's time to hire? And Lauren, it seems like it's always time to hire for you. Um, have you ever had a time in your private practice career where you weren't necessarily hiring um, immediately as urgent as you are right now? Yes. I mean, we track a lot of statistics. So on each PT and then as a company as a whole, we're running, you know, percent full percent arrival numbers. We have our targets. Um, so clearly if we're coming in way under those after we've vetted that, you know, we're doing everything we're supposed to do to keep the schedules full, it just might not be appropriate. On the flip side of that, we, you know, we want to get patients in as soon as possible. So if we, I think our standard is if for more than three weeks, we can't get an eval in for more than one week, then we're already thinking about it. Um, we want to try to get people in within the same week if possible. So at times when our wait list has just been so far out and, and patients let you know too, when they're calling and they're like, what, you can't get me in for this long, you know, you're losing them to competitors if you can't get them in. So. Yep. Um, yeah, that's devastating. That <laughs> that bothers me for sure. I, I know um, at, a, a few years ago, we would think about it in terms of the last clinician we hired once they were 50% full. So let's say we have a location with four clinicians, assuming the first three are full. Once we get that fourth clinician 50% uh, full, then it was time for us to actively really uh, pour the coals on sourcing and um, start thinking about bringing that next clinician on knowing that it's going to take 90 to 180 days um, to do that. And for us right now, I mean, with the market, the way it is, that's why we keep our ad running. It's more, if I have something that looks like a promising hit, like when the resume first comes in, even though I haven't started the interview process, that's when I'm like, Hey, can we actually hire somebody? Can we make this happen? Because 
if you have a willing clinician, then you, then you push for it, you know, um, yeah. versus usually it's the other way where you just can't hire in time. Yeah. Perfect. So, um, the, the other thing, uh, that Lauren just mentioned, um, in terms of lost income. Uh, so this is a framework that I use, um, when we're thinking about investing in the practice and, and growing. So five ways to invest in your practice. Number one is you can buy more space. Lauren just opened, uh, an additional location. So how many square feet did you add there, Lauren? Uh, just under 5,000. You added 5,000 more square feet. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a lot. And it's California pricing too. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, um, so yeah, th whether, you know, we're looking at expanding, uh, an existing clinic from, you know, 2000 square feet to 4,000 square feet, or we're looking at opening an additional facility, that would be an investment in space. Next one is personnel. That's obviously what we're talking about and focused about here. You can invest in marketing, buying market share, um, various ways to do that, buying more equipment, treatment equipment, your ability to deliver more services. And then you can also invest in uh, improving your systems as well. So, uh, yeah. Make one comment on the space thing real quick. Um, one thing that I didn't think about early on becoming a practice owner, but it paid off well was with our first space or when you're looking for a new space, we always wanted first floor access, but our first space had smaller suites around us. And we did kind of inquire as to what's in there, when are those leases due? Because if nothing else, especially the, we actually expanded that one location three times. We took over suites as other people's leases ended until we had the whole bottom floor of that building. Um, which was almost 8,000 square feet at our first location. So it also helps because if you know when someone's lease is up, it can push you a little bit to be like, is it time to jump on that and force myself to expand if things are going well? Yes, we're, we're, we're going through that same exact problem solving uh, right now, Lauren. Great point there. Um, and, you know, essentially what this comes down to long-term for us is we're, we're playing a game as practice owners. If you're thinking about, you know, growing and expanding, leaving a greater impact in your area through, the services that you provide is we have to pay attention to those first two space and personnel utilization. And um, at, at least for uh, what we're talking about here is, so when I'm looking at 5,000 square feet, how many, uh, how many visits a week potential could you be doing in that space line? Uh, we're Keyword. hoping to get about 500 ish. <laughs> Perfect. So you, you're going to grow to that over the next and how, well, I'll ask you, how long do you expect that to? As fast as possible, but that's probably getting those two more PTs on here. So if I have, you know, five, five and a half plus PTs here, we stagger our schedules. We're open 630 in the morning to seven at night. So we stagger and we have alternative work weeks and things like that. Cool. Um, and so 12 months, 24 months um, till, till full maturity there. So we're constantly juggling. Um, and thinking about how do we get to maximal space utilization because that anytime we make an investment in our practice, if we're getting a return, if we're nearing that full potential, then it's an asset to the business, right? It's, it's adding to the business. The other one, the underutilized space or underutilized personnel or marketing that we're not following up on or getting a return from, they're liabilities to the practice. So, uh, ultimately for all of us to keep our doors open, especially in a lower margin business like uh, physical therapy, we have to think of, we have to pay attention to that um, and have less liabilities than we do um, assets that are returning more revenue and income uh, to the practice. How do you think about that, Lauren? Um, I, I agree with you. <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah. I, Yes, you're always trying to leverage what you have. I mean, it's it's the ever living struggle of PT. I think for us, the reason I kind of hesitated too is, you know, we've supplemented with other services. So I have massage therapy, I have personal training and Pilates. So that kind of divvy up, divvies up my space a little bit. And I think that was a big mistake that I made in the first location is we kind of gave too much space or square footage out of our first location to say our wellness department that only had, you know, one and a half practitioners where at the end of the day, I was like, hey, I can get more PTs in here and make it more productive. Yeah, smart. So the three-step process for filling, um, when you do bring a clinician on, uh, the way, and Lauren and I talked about this yesterday, and I, we're pretty comparable. So 90 days before hiring, uh, you, you want to think about ramping up patient demand. So from the sounds of it, you know, Lauren already has that patient demand 
uh, ramped up. She has, uh, you know, plenty of physician referrals in place from years of experience. She's actively marketing um, to her past patient list and has patient reactivations coming in word of mouth. And she also does a lot to uh, the general public through uh, workshops. We pretty much have the same exact thing. And we just, the way that I think about it is we have levers that we can pull whenever we need to, to ramp up um, the demand. Any comment on that, Lauren? Yeah, I think having those levers and also knowing who you want to target it to. So again, do I need to pull the one to my physician referral sources or do I need to pull the one to my past patients um, or yeah, up my marketing budget for the, the workshops or things like that? It's just, you know, you make those decisions based on that current state. Yep. Perfect. Um, so phase number two or stage two, step two, I guess it is, um, you know, the after you make that hire and that new clinician starts, um, there's onboarding and getting up to speed. So the way that we um, we have our program is we have uh, clinical directors that serve as mentors, and then they are mentoring that, um, whether it's a new grad or somebody with a few years of experience, uh, clinician with a few years of experience, they're at least onboarding, understanding how, um, how we operate, what our systems look like, our processes look like. What do you do, Lauren? Uh, same thing. So our, um, all of our um, new hires, despite experience, are generally followed closely by our clinic director or myself um, for the first 90 days. Then if I have somebody who has a lot of experience in outpatient orthopedics, you know, specifically our niche, they might be done. But most of our hires um, are onboarded for some kind of mentoring program for up to a year, depending on their background. And we have ways to kind of filter that and decide. So for, um, for us, we'll extend our mentorship for entry-level DPTs a little bit longer, um, up to a year, and uh, you know, very much in line with what you're doing, Lauren. And then, um, yeah, the, 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 our aim is that 90 days after hire that they have a full schedule. So for us, um, and I know we all have different uh, length of treatment, uh, visit you know, per visit and everything else, but we have a target of 50 visits per week for that new clinician um, that we want them to hit that by 90 days. Usually they're around that. Sometimes it's a little bit lower um, in the lower forties, but um, we're then they're actively being mentored with an experienced clinician, usually the director um, to help them look at their schedule to, to manage the, the full caseload. Um, great. So um, I'm blanking on what we talked about here, but uh, the, so the, the two and a half clinicians, what did you do for the new, um, at the new location? And then if you can talk about what you did at the, uh, the original location for uh, when you brought in new staff there, Lauren, that would be great. Your experience doing that. Um, I mean, all of our new hires pretty much follow that same trajectory where they come in day one is mostly, you know, admin, HR, onboarding, um, but we open up the schedule. Depending on their schedule, they are allowed to see four to five new evals a day, depending on if they're working an eight hour or 10 hour day. Um, but we give them extra what we call administrative time just for paperwork and stuff. So the first two weeks, we give them an extra hour of paperwork time every day. The next two weeks, they have an extra half hour um, a day beyond what a normal PT would get on our staff. So kind of going back to that 90 day things by 30 days, their schedule is open to reflect what a normal full-time therapist would be without the extra paperwork and training times minus the pre-organized mentoring, which is usually not more than an extra hour a week, say with me or someone. Um, our target for a full-time therapist is 61 visits a week. Um, and again, we aim for 93% full, I would say, you know, at our lowest right now, I think even our new hire, I think I think she was at like 85 for her first week, you know, which wasn't terrible. Um, so um, by 90 days, for sure, they are expected to be at that 61 visits a week. Um, we also have a second layer to that, depending on most of our PTs by 90 days are also put on a different kind of payment module where they're reimbursed for a performance pay model at that 90 day mark. Um, so they also want to be productive by then. And I think having that drive um, definitely has helped. They're more in, you know, enticed. Once we know that they've gotten all the foundational things, they know our systems and procedures. That's why we don't mess with that in the first 90 days. There's no one who comes on starting on that model. 
um, because we want them to make sure that they learn the basics. But then it's great to have that buy-in to, like you said, get the complete plans of care, call those people who have dropped off their schedule. Um, And then I'm monitoring that from above too with any new hire to make sure, do they have a higher than normal amount of drop-offs? You know, do they need some training on that, capturing the plan of care, getting the patient buy-in? I'm monitoring all the paperwork and billing that goes out um, in the beginning just to kind of spot check all that, make sure it's compliant and up to our standards. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I know for us, that is the largest, uh, probably the biggest misconception that therapists have is that I'm great. I provide high quality of care. Everybody that I give a plan of care to, they're going to complete that plan of care, meet all their goals and go tell the world about it. And that's not what happens, <laughs> right? At least in the beginning until, um, until their competencies are up. So I know we, we do a, a, an audit exercise and our, uh, yeah, we have a clinical director now. Um, she has converted 100% in her last, uh, last four workshops and has grown a clinic quickly from zero to, I think there are 140, 150 visits. She's hiring her fourth clinician right now. Um, very with, uh, she's done that in nine months. And, uh, but when she first started with us, I had asked her, I said, you know, what do you think your graduation rate is? And, uh, and she said, oh, you know, pretty high, 80, 90%. And we had her go back and do an audit and uh, it was 40%. So out of 20 new patients, eight had graduated and she was devastated. And she just, she crushed it after that. You know, just having that awareness in there was um, a very big deal um, for her and, and really career changing just to have that. So how, how do you, do you do something similar when you're working with them one-on-one? How do you how do you think through and help them manage that? Um, well, so I guess two things kind of touching. So the drop-off list, which for us is, you know, every Monday they get a list of patients who have no future follow-ups. And we say an average full-time PT should never have more than 10 patients on that list. So um, that's one way. So I can kind of track week over week. And then we have our procedures for handling that. How fast are they able, you know, and how much do they care? Are they the ones making that first call? Because patients are more accountable to their PT than they are on the front desk anyway. Even though we say, we understand you're busy, so you can have the front desk call or text the patient but you'll see who kind of takes the initiative on that. And I think the preconceived notion, like you said, I've had much more senior PTs who think, yes, I'm God and people will come in and I don't have to work on my interaction skills and plan of care. And their drop-off lists have been way longer, you know? And then of course there's the new grads who just don't know yet how to do that. So I've had to train kind of on both ends that um, really the first day, like eval day, the things you have to cover, make sure they're involved in determining the plan of care, that sort of thing. But we do run a statistic on um, dropout rate And on our discharge notes, we have boxes that they have to kind of bucket people to say, you know, who did the discharge? Was it a PT discharge, a patient initiated, a drop off or a medical reason? And then we have them summarize the percent of goals met. So we have like 100 percent. Then we do 85 to 99 percent and then below that, because then I can go run stats a myriad of ways. So, yes, you know, you might have said these people are done, but are you taking them to 100 percent or are they early discharges or are are the patients telling you that they're good enough, you know, and you're losing those last potential two or three visits on every plan of care? Um, So, yeah, that was very when I presented that to it's stunning when you actually look at what, you know, an office's dropout rate is and you're considering all the time spent, not only from the clinician, but intake paperwork, things like that. And especially what kills me are like that you did all that for an eval and then they never come back and you're like, (laughs) it's a lot of money up front. So. Yeah. We, I I don't hear this much anymore, but I know uh, there was a trend. This is probably 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, with some of our therapists that uh, there was a, a game of like, it was significant, uh, a significant change. So like once we had a significant change, then we discharged them. I was like, well, what's a significant change? And it, at, I think it was defined that time as like a 50% pain reduction. So we were discharging people at like three, three visits. And w- what I would always say is like, do you know how much work we, we put, an investment we put in to get that physician referral um, to have that person attend the workshop, to you know, have them schedule an appointment, have them schedule a free screen or an IE, to sign up for the plan of care, and then you know you're discharging that person. And what is insanity is if you ever follow up with those patients that were discharged early, they usually go to another type of treatment. If if they feel like they've been abandoned in any way, they'll you know they'll go see. Um, the doctor down the street or the, the chiropractor down the street or the massage therapist or whatever it might be, or another physical therapist in, in many cases. And it's uh, that 
that only has to happen a couple times before you put some processes and uh, around that. So uh, we yeah, also, um, I'll run a statistic and again, I, I do this quarterly if I'm on it, but at least twice a year, cause you're trying to look at a whole plan of care per PT, the average plan of care length. So that's including any of the early drop-offs and including all those post-op that might be here forever and seeing, and I can compare the PTs to one another, but also to national norm of average plan of care. So if I see outliers there, um, you know, the ones who are seeing patients for forever, I'm making sure on a compliance point, they're okay. Or I can kind of say, Hey, your average plan of care is five, six visits. That's way below not only our clinic average, but the national average, you know, just under 11. So. Yeah. Awesome. Love the checks and balances there. Um, so we're going to put a poll up here and then we'll open this up for Q and a, um, what do you need the most help with right now in your practice? So, uh, you know, I need help attracting new patients. I need help uh, converting more leads and filling that therapist schedule um, as quickly as possible. I need help reactivating past patients, all the above or none. You're just like Lauren and your practice consistently um, has a waiting list. So you can just click on the poll there. I just want to say, just because we have a waiting list, we still got hit with, you know, all the holiday cancellations and the COVID illnesses and the so it's, it's not always perfect, but then, like I said, it's as fast as we can get people called and get them in. And, and that's been our next issue is just other staffing too, not just PTs. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'll, I'll open this up with my first question for you. What are you doing for marketing? Because obviously you've done a lot there in terms of uh, creating a reputation within your community. You have, you know, who huge rising tide effect. It sounds like you're doing everything across the board from physician marketing to direct to consumer what are you doing there to create that patient demand? Um, we certainly are involved with Breakthrough. So I have three funnels going with Breakthrough right now for workshops. Um, we d have internal um, to past patients kind of reactivation, keep in touch kind of thing. So we do handwritten cards, thank you cards to um, our new patients when they come in, or if we know that, you know, someone sent a friend or family referral, um, just awareness of that. Um, we write thank you cards to, I have, that's one thing I have my new hires do to get their name connected to our brand. If, you know, if one of them ends up having great success for a certain doctor, we have them hand write to the referral sources for the evals that they see a thank you for the referral of so-and-so. I look forward to working with them. Please let me know if you need anything. Um, and then beyond the first, again, we usually do that the first 90 days. And then the PTs don't have to do those. They always can, because then there's another line of we have a bonus path that they can take but as a company all new doctors get letters from me and potentially calls to just say hi and see what needs they have we still do birthday cards you know mailers to the patients um yeah yelp reviews google reviews we definitely try to social media has been so big lately great so you're doing huge amounts of communication to your past patient list and physician referrals professional referrals and then you're also doing um you're advertising for workshops, the funnels, just for everybody. Uh, if you're not aware of that, a funnel is basically your, what are the three you're doing? Rotator cuff, back and knee or something along those lines, Lauren. Great. Uh, the, the trifecta there. So uh, you're running advertisements, uh, likely on Facebook and Instagram, driving to um, workshops, which is a conversion mechanism. Get your name out there in the community, creates um, really ultimately a brand uh, branding effect that you can measure by providing a valuable service to the community with information on how they can um, how they can get treatment, what successful treatment looks like for rotator cuff and shoulder issues, knee problems, and and back pain as well. Great. So we'll go through this pretty quick, um, but yeah, the, uh, I mean the in terms of the systems, the direct to consumer marketing systems that uh, Lauren and I use in our practices. We're leading with patient education and our advertising. What that does is rather than just create um, a branding effect solely, we're providing a valuable service um, to the community. And when we're talking about cold traffic, educated leads are the best leads that are coming through because they're spending time with us and they view us as the authority, the celebrity and expert for rotator cuff problems or balance issues or um, whatever the, the specialty that we're talking about delivering material on is. Um, the next one is uh, you want to go through the market message media match. We talk about this in uh, almost all of our online training, but the market is who specifically who you're marketing to. The message is what we're saying in our ads uh, should be patient focused, not clinician focused. 
not clinician language. Um, and then the media is um, really, you know, it, it's direct mail, radio, television, uh, billboards, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Google ads, et cetera, um, and, and how we're reaching them. And essentially what this slide says, this, this principle is that those three things must be in alignment in order for you to have effective marketing. And then finally, go ahead, Lauren. Right, Chad, on, uh, on that last slide, one thing too is I, I hear a lot of people who've always said, you know, get away from direct mail, stop doing the birthday cards or patient mailed letters. For us, we kept it. It was huge for us because our demographic, you know, we see, you know, 40 to 50% Medicare at certain times of the year. Like they aren't all on social media. So they really appreciate that kind of paper mail, snail mail style stuff. So we kind of, we, a couple of years ago, we took like an, a year or two off and we were like, nope, that was a bad move. We needed to keep that in for the marketing. And I think whole big picture too is even with the hiring thing is, you know, making sure that you, it's very easy when you look at your bottom line and you're looking at your budget to say, I'm going to skimp on my marketing because I need to save money because yeah, my profit per visit is miserable as a PT. But if you need to fill that schedule, front that money now, it's going to come back when you, when you get those visits. So completely agree, um, especially on the direct mail. Um, we, we did the same thing uh, a little while, eight, eight or nine years ago, shut down direct mail, horrible decision, put it, saw our numbers drop, put it back in um, right away. The other thing is it's really easy to stand out there now because a lot of companies killed their direct mail. So it's easier to stand out in the mailbox that you have children, Lauren, correct? So if they, have they, within the past year on their birthday, did they receive uh, like a birthday card or anything from mm -hmm. uh, any of your the relatives? Dentist, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, well, fair. <laughs> um, That's relative. They love, they love opening mail. They love yeah, colorful yeah. mail too. You know, I, I still get some direct mail that comes in like a white standard envelope and that doesn't, that's not eye catching, but the postcards, I mean, and there's so many, yeah, like you said, there's so many different ways to make it eye catching and make it stand out. And yeah, I, I know our kids just light up when they get a, handwritten card or anything in the mail at all because it's so rare for them right um and uh yeah so essentially again these three things have to be in alignment and direct mail is an easy way to stand out providing value in your, your online media also an easy way to stand out you just want to make sure they're in alignment and the last one is uh you know you want to think through automation so for us you know we're running Right now, um, I believe 10 or 12 workshops a month um, for our practices, and it's a lot of leads. Um, we have people coming in from direct mail, from uh, online advertising, from uh, TV, from, oh, what's the other big one? Um, print ads as well. And there's important if you're going to do that type of advertising when you market direct to the consumer is you have to be able to track those leads as they come through the conversations that you're having and ultimately when they land on that first appointment however you're whatever you're doing in terms of conversion there so there has to be some sort of automation some sort of follow-up those personal touch points that help somebody who has no idea what physical therapy can do for them or your healthcare services can do for them and then ultimately where they land um, on the schedule the days that um, we grew up with in private practice where Debbie, the receptionist would walk over and pull the script off the, the fax machine and then call the patient to schedule. The, the, those days are over for the vast majority of the new patients that we're going to be seeing in our clinics. So we have to learn how to um, catch up. And that is really through automation. There is powerful software um, available that you can use to manage um, from the time somebody responds to an ad the whole time the whole way through until they become a patient. Uh, yeah, so we, uh, at Breakthrough, we have a, an all-in-one patient demand platform. Again, it's exactly what Lauren and I are using to fill our clinics, to fill um, our clinician schedules. When we do get that higher in, um, we don't want it to be a liability to the practice. We want it to be an asset to the practice um, and help them get it full as quickly as possible. One note on that too. I mean, I think obviously we want them as full as possible. We did, I think it was one or two hires ago. Um, I made the mistake of actually letting them, I would say almost get too full too fast because then those other checks and balances of the documentation and the billing was harder to keep up on. 
And, um, and, you know, they went through that, oh my gosh, overwhelm, slight burnout. And then we kind of backed off a little bit, but it was more detrimental to the big picture of me making sure foundationally they were sound. Um, so I'm just, a, you know, pick a number yeah. that's maybe slightly below, like I said, where target is 93% full. That's why I'm fine with exactly where my newest hire came in at about 85 for her first week. That's fine. You know, cause again, she's still learning what's expected of the documentation and the billing. And, um, so yeah, I, the, I, I, the keyword here I think about is control. So maybe I misspoke that, you know, it's great if we have uh, lines and lines of people like we see in all the um, advertisements for marketing agencies of people waiting out our door. But um, yeah, we, we want to control that flow more than anything else by pulling that set of levers, uh, whatever we need to do. So if we need four new patients a week for that therapist coming in, we can, we can gauge that effort. Um, based on hist historical uh, historical systems performance to have those, you know, roughly the, the four new patients coming in and um, elevate the demand as they get more and more competent managing their schedule. And in private practice, I mean, we, we get so many referrals from past patients, friends and family that we want that good experience. And again, you know, we hear a lot of, I don't want to go to that other clinic because it is just a mill or I felt like it wasn't personal. I mean, we get a lot by maintaining that personal touch and we've maintained, you know, half hour follow-up visits where some of our local people are seeing three, four, sometimes even five patients an hour. Um, so we just stand out. And also the square footage thing, I was just actually um, in New York visiting another clinic and walking around the layout of the clinics are so different, but for where we are, you know, like we stand out because yeah, our rooms are a little bigger than in other places. There is decor, there is, you know, colors on the walls, not just plain white. And that hugely makes us stand out in our area. So being aware of what your competitors look like and how they, what their models are, um, make sure you stick to that and stay true to your brand. Right on the, along those same lines, um, when it, it, in terms of, uh, maintaining your brand. So you have a brand that you're pu putting forth, uh, Lafayette physical therapy, by the way, nice background. I know we talked about that yesterday. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're doing something to attract, you know, you're ultimately, uh, converting and you talk through the attraction systems that you have in place. Your staff is well-trained. I know you're doing the uh, large uh, portion of the workshops, if not all the workshops, but you have uh, your clinicians and your front desk, the people on the phones that are interacting with potential patients, they're trained to ultimately convert those people that are interested, whether they're past patients being reactivated, physician referrals, or people from the uh, cold traffic from the general public to ultimately convert over. And then Lauren, you've really crushed the measure uh, portion of this where you talked about being able to take a look at what is going on uh, within the practice, whether we're talking about graduation rates or plan of care completion, et cetera, you're doing a solid job of that. So is this what we have here in terms of the flywheel? Is that kind of how you think about um, growing your practice or, and I know this is very biased to breakthrough, but, uh, how do you think about it? No, this is very organized. I don't think it's this organized in my head, but, <laughs> but yes, no, I mean, and, and breakthrough has been, has been great for us in that. And a lot of the things, um, you know, the tracking of things has always been a difficult part for us. We were doing a ton in Excel spreadsheets. And when we looked at that next level, it was like, you know, getting huge corporations like Salesforce to build out things for us, which was astronomically expensive. Um, so we didn't go that route, you know, but I think breakthrough was a good middle ground. It's, it's huge. And I think too, that, that follow-up to a point, you know, we've had it, some patients don't like all the follow-up, it's too much. And then you unsubscribe them from things and you back off. But I think it definitely helps, you know, the touch points of, you know, seven touch points sometimes to, to get someone to, to come to your clinic. I mean, and that can be these emails that can be the phone calls, but if you give up too soon, and that's something that I think most practices do, because we don't have the time or the money or the resources or the, you know, the staffing to do it. Um, it's made a big difference. And, and I think that has set us up. I mean, since we, I'm not to, I'm plugging breakthrough, patting the back, but I mean, since we started, we've had you know, we can always actually follow up with our leads more than we do. And we would have that much better of a response and more patients coming to us, but it's helped us. The biggest reason we even started with breakthrough was the ebbs and flows in a normal year of patient visits where sometimes we'd have all the staffing, but then not enough visits. And then we'd have too many visits, you know, but not enough staff to do it. And, um, 
we've definitely in the last year plus really fixed the fact that the referrals are always there, like you said, and we can get more if we can do more. And now we're just trying to catch up and keep up with the staffing. And that's a great problem to have. Yeah. We, and uh, I hope this doesn't get lost on everybody, but uh, the, the, when it is time for you to ramp up, Lauren, Debbie Lampson, who I believe is in Idaho, uh, she's a practice owner or uh, Jared Pugmire is the practice owner. Debbie Lamson runs his uh, or run. Yeah. Runs his marketing. Um, she shared something that she did through the software, the breakthrough software where she went back um, for, I think the last six months and anybody who didn't show up to uh, their first appointment or come to the workshop, um, this reactivation that she did, our group who heard that uh, a week or two ago in Orlando just came back and did that. And the, I know the one marketer, they had 12 reactivations in 24 hours, just from a, a, a simple touch point and follow up because we have the capacity to treat it and, you know, handle that flow in one office right now. So yeah, what you're talking about, never shut off marketing completely. Right. And uh, just create that demand long-term and then you can ramp up based on how we're doing with personnel capacity. I think the other thing for personnel that stood out for us is like, we're too, like we always struggled on and off. We've had a marketing person, but again, to hire a marketing person who wasn't part of our culture, who knew enough about us and PT never worked out. And they're just coming from a different mind frame, but being able to justify the fact that we are spending more on, you know, admin and marketing, if we're going to call it that for our schedule schedulers to do some of that follow-up, it was hard. It's a hard, you know, some people would argue we have too much, you know, in that on the admin side, but I'm like, if that's what we need to fill the schedules, that's kind of been our, my biggest balance looking at the budgeting stuff lately. Yep. So uh, final poll here for you, and then we'll open this up for Q and A. looks like we have some comments in there and uh, some questions. Uh, if you're interested in the same type of patient demand strategies uh, and systems that have helped Lauren uh, fill her team schedule that we're talking about right now, you can click simply click, uh, yes there on the poll and our team uh, they'll follow up with you um, so we do have some questions here oh I don't see where it opened up I can read out the questions if that helps Chad we have some questions from the audience here yep, great so let's see um Carlisle asked, how much extra paperwork time do you give new therapists? I take that one first. Um, our standard for all staff, not just new hire, in a 40-hour week, they usually have about two and a half hours. So usually it's like the last half hour of every day we give them paperwork time. So our new hires on top of that, um, the first two weeks-ish, they get um, one extra hour every day that they're here. So an extra up to five hours, but that's also based on the fact that they're still coming up to speed, maybe finishing up some bits of pieces of training and HR stuff, but also the fact that, you know, my PT that I just hired had 19 evals her first week. So just learning our system and the number of patient eval paperwork, she needed that paperwork time. So I don't, again, I don't regret giving it. We do that the first two weeks, then the next two weeks, you get an extra half hour a day. And then I usually will ask them, do you want a half hour a day? Or do you want you know me to combine those to give you an hour here and an hour there? Because sometimes the half hours get eaten into by patients running late or whatever. Um, so I kind of work with them on how they want that. But then after that first 30 days, pending nothing unforeseen, they're no extra paperwork and back to their standard staff. And after 90 days, you they're converted over to a, essentially a highly incentivized compensation model. Yeah. Performance pay model. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, yeah, you're very generous, Lauren, <laughs> with your documentation time. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the new hire, like I said, but I wanted her to see that many evals, right? So I'm like, okay, you're going to see those evals to get those patients started. I'll give you more paperwork time now, but otherwise, yeah. And we get pushback on the half hour a day for our staff. Do you give any paperwork time for standard stuff? We, so all of our therapists, uh, we, we do it through the ramp up, right? So it, in the beginning, they're seeing a limited number of, uh, of evals um, as an entry level. So they may be limited to three or four new patients per week in the very beginning. Um, and they're not, they don't have a, a, an immediate full caseload over, uh, you know, the first 60 or 90 days are gonna build up to that roughly 45 to 55 visits a week. Um, so there's, there's built in time there. 
but it's not, we don't carve it out at the end of the day. Um, the, and uh, Pennsylvania, they're all clinicians are salaried, um, which California has a different set. They're of not required to be. Our, ours are. Um... Uh, I'm trying to think. Yes, except for our new grads, we'll we'll do hourly in the beginning during our 90 days for some of our new grads, um, depending on their PTLA status or whatever else. But yes, our goal is to get all of our PTs salaried. Yeah, we. Um, I can tell you when we were on an hourly rate, um, we had a lot of therapists pulling extra hours for documentation. Time. Time. Yep, that's why we <laughs> and, wanted to switch. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, when we went salaried, that went away pretty quick. So we do a 39 and a half hour treatment week. And then, uh, yeah, for the most part, documentation is uh, done during the, during the visit, during the encounter. How, old, how long are your follow-ups? Uh, same. So they're, um, we're, they're essentially scheduled on the 40 minutes, every 40. We have another question from Frank. How many available visits are on the average PT schedule? For us, um, we have like half hour patient spots, we'll call them minus the paperwork time on a 40 hour week, uh, there's 72 spots. And then because we expect them to be about 93% full, that's where our target of 61 visits per week comes into play. Um, it gets a little skewed. You have to be aware, you know, we've averaged out the fact that in a normal staff PT week, they might see five or six evals because evals are two spots because we do hour evals and half hour follow-ups. Yeah. So I'll, uh, only because I've been in this conversation already and I've heard, you know, some crazy numbers of clinicians doing a hundred plus visits per week. And then we talk about how many units they're billing. So I can tell, I can share that, um, our clinicians are billing between 240 and 300 units per week. Um, on it. that, that's the general range. So it depends on the clinician, but if they're seeing, you know, four and a half, uh, if they're billing four and a half units per visit, um, they're, and they're seeing 60 visits per week, um, that would be uh, 300, roughly um, 270, 300 units. So that's, uh, that's kind of the peak of what we're, what we're doing. But they're, they're allowed to manage their own schedule also. So they decentralize it. In general, they're scheduling um, a, a patient every 40 minutes. We've gone back and forth with tracking units. It's a little messier on our side because we have some capitated contracts and things like that where it doesn't always pan out to be worth it. So it's. Yeah, we, we try to be agnostic um, for, I feel like I should do a disclaimer here because uh, we all have different practice acts. Uh, go to your compliance. So whoever you work with in terms of uh, Healthcare compliance, make sure you have a conversation with them. We, we work with BCMS and also Paul Welk all the time to make sure we're not violating um, anything there. We work with BCMS as well. Perfect. Robin sent through a question for Lauren. Um, she's asking, what's an example of your performance pay model? We use um, Onus One as a kind of calculation platform. Um, there's three different tiers. The PTs can kind of, they're kind of like, they're going to call them risk tiers. The PTs can pick what tier they want. Um, meaning, you know, if you pick the gold tier, the best tier, then if you see more visits, you get paid exponentially, so to speak more. If you see less though, you get paid less. Um, and then the bronze or the lower plan is less risk, which just means paycheck, you know, is about the same kind of week to week, assuming you see an average number of patients, you get to set a lot of your own parameters. So um, we actually set a you know, minimum threshold that's slightly below our target, but covers their cost. And then, um, yeah, kind of goes from there. It's a reach out to them. It's different. It's different in states too. Like we have to have set a different minimum base pay because we're in California and it's salary. So there's a lot of rules, but you get to customize it all with that program directly. But and then it just allows for, you know, with the salaried PTs, we ran into this where obviously you're salaried, so I don't have to pay you per hour and you could see more patients if you wanted to, but why would you? Because you're not incentivized to. And I'm not even saying we don't necessarily promote double booking, but say you want to take a vacation next week and you want to get more patients in this week for me, 
you will get paid for that in this week to maybe offset or help plan or, you know, Christmas is coming and you want your paycheck to be a little padded and I have other PTs on vacation, you can come in and work more hours, even pick up another half shift again, because we do 10 hour and five hour shifts sometimes. Or if you work an eight, you can work a 10 and get a couple more dollars here and there, but it at least fixed that problem for us of maybe inspiring more. And I've had one or two PTs who've really jumped on that. And then everybody else is like, nope, I'm good with my standard 40 hours. And as long as I'm hitting my basic targets, I'm good. And, and that's fine. But it protected the company a little bit too. Here in California, two years ago, we had to shut down for five days due to fires and smoke and things like that. And I had to pay my salaried staff because they showed up for that one hour on Monday before we had to shut down. So we have to pay them their full salary for the whole week. And I had no patient visits. So this way now, they in this model, they get paid their base minimum salary for that week. I'm required by law to do that, but it just gave us some protections on the extreme ends of things too. Yeah, there are some references um, for those of you that are interested in uh, exploring, you know, different pay models. Um, Jack Stack wrote a few books, uh, Great Game of Business and uh, Stake in the Outcome, I think is the other one. Um, And then there's also uh, a book that I believe is no longer published by Les Schwab, um, who was a pretty savvy business owner um, in in tire sales. Neither one of them are in healthcare services, but you can look at their payment model, but make sure that you talk with a good employment attorney um, based on your state employment laws that you can apply um, an incentivization model uh, within your company. But yeah, I'm I'm completely completely with you there, Lauren, um, in terms of, uh, yeah, stake in the game is really, really the way to go. All right, so uh, I don't see any other questions. Um, oh, I see one real quickly for Gloria. Um, what is the national average of treatments before discharge? It's uh, just under 11 the last time I checked. I did not check last year because of COVID. It was bad to, to trace kind of lengths of plans of care. Um, but right before that, it was like 10 and change. Yeah. And we had the, I had the same number from the last report I looked at. It, it was like 10.8 or 10.9, something like that. So, um, I afford to hire, talk through that. How can I afford to do marketing? How do you determine if your personnel is over or underutilized? We talk through that as well. So um, any other questions for Lauren or I before we sign off here? Great, any parting words, Lauren? No, thank you for inviting me to do this. And I'm certainly, if anybody wants to reach out to me for any questions, I'm available. Great. Um, what's the best way for them to? For them uh, to you can them? email me. It's L Massey, L M A S I dot PT at lafayettept.com. I can put it in the chat box too. Wonderful. And uh, so. Catching up, how many available visits on that? We talked through that. Jorge, um, how much does breakthrough cost? You're, yeah, so if you click yes on the poll, um, our, what will happen is um, somebody from Breakthrough will contact you. They'll look at your area. They'll do a market study for you, and they can talk through the different programs um, that we offer there and what's best for your practice. You have Lauren's email address there. Lauren, you were great. Thank you so much for being on here and uh, sharing your experience. Uh, This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Have a great day. See ya.